This morning in our ongoing and continuing trek through the Word of God, we come to the next stop on our journey, the book of Nehemiah. Why don't you open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. I am impressed by this that the Lord has made it so clear and yet we have, mankind has so missed the truth. I've told my sons and daughters many times and continue to say, you know, if you'll just show up, you'll get a passing grade. If you'll just be there, that's the easy part. And then on top of that, you put in a little effort, you'll, you'll get a better grade. And if you really work hard, you can, you can pull A's. Teachers aren't, aren't out, most of them aren't out to uh, <laughs> undermine you. They really do want you to learn. And Jim is fiercely nodding back there. If you'll just show up. And the problem is that people don't show up. God has made it so clear. As we have gone through our our study in the Word, and again, landing at this point this morning in Nehemiah, if people would just show up to the Word of God, if they would just show up in prayer, they would learn all they need to know. And yet, we set this aside and, and... and debate it and say, no, it's not legitimate, it's not true, without even showing up to see. But when you show up, as, as many of you know, the truth of Jesus, God's plan across all of history, has been laid out from page one all the way through now. And all we need to do is show up and we see that plan unfold before us. Well, it continues this morning. Before we get there, I do want to ask a question. And that is, who is the shortest man in the Bible? No. Nehemiah. Actually, no, that's not true. There's, I, I discovered, that's an old joke, but I've discovered a man shorter, in fact, than Nehemiah. If you go to Job chapter 8, you meet Bildad the Shuhite. That was just for those of you who came this morning looking for a short sermon. <laughs> The book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is, I'm going to call it, a troubleshooter's guide for the everyman. A troubleshooter's guide for the everyman. Like one of those greasy, coffee-stained, dog-eared, crusty repair manuals that stack up in so many garage workbenches. It's the everyday guide, the troubleshooter's guide for the everyman. Nehemiah, this book, is a roll-up-your-sleeves, hands-to-the-work, get-her-done troubleshooter's guide. That's what it's about. Nehemiah is a man who moves. He is a man set to the work. He's a man who when he hears his call, he responds quickly and bravely and effectively and efficiently. He's he's a man's man. Now some of you ladies might be saying, what about every woman? Don't worry, Esther's on the way. (laughs) But honestly, it's not just a man's book. Nehemiah is a book for the common person, which is why I say the everyman's guide. The common person. The the person in humanity. It is a book for the common person called by Christ to the work of faith. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11, We pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. You see, we all have a calling. You come to faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you've given your life to Him, guess what? You have a calling. What our calling is and how He calls us 
What we're going to do with that, that's the question that follows. But he says, we pray that our God will count you worthy of your calling to fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of the faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this troubleshooter's guide for the everyman, I call it this because there's nothing special or unique about Nehemiah, as we will see. There's nothing unique, but nothing standout about it. He, was, he is truly everyman. He's not a prince in the line of Judah like Zerubbabel was. He's not a high priest in the line of Aaron, like Yeshua or Ezra were before him. He's just plain old Nehemiah. Every man. A common guy. But if not for Nehemiah's prayerfully activated faith, Jerusalem would have remained in a shabby state of broken down disrepair, and the people would have remained spiritually numb. He's every man. With that understanding, let's look at verse 1, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah. Actually, if you're going to say that in Hebrew, and I decided I'm just going to say Nehemiah because we're all used to Nehemiah and it's easier to roll it off the tongue in English, but it's Nehemiah in the Hebrew. Nehemiah. Thank you. (laughs) The son of Hekeliah. Don't start heckling me during this teaching. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, it happened on the month of Hislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that is of Persia. It's also the citadel, it's the main place there for Persia. That Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. What's some info? What's going on? What's happening back in the land? Verse 3, They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The year is 444 B.C. Remember that date, it's highly significant. 444 B.C. When we open up to the first verse of chapter 1 of Nehemiah. This is about 14 to 15 years or so after Ezra's return. And in spite of all that we read in Ezra, and and the attempt of Ezra to stir up the people and bring them to faith, 15 years later, things are still not what they should be. They're, They're still not what they could be back in the land of Judah or in Jerusalem. You see, it was after the building of the second temple by Zerubbabel the prince and Yeshua the priest. It was after the stirring up of the people by Ezra the scribe and priest that now Nehemiah the cupbearer, the common everyday everyman, comes along to do some serious rebuilding. Hands to the work. Now you might again note in these first four verses the use of the name God of Heaven. God of Heaven is peculiar As we've seen to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, those three books refer to Him as the God of Heaven. And you know why, you Bible students, it's because the glory of the Lord had departed Jerusalem. Though He said, this is the place I will put My name, the people broke covenant with Him. The temple was destroyed, that first temple. We never see any indication whatsoever throughout the Scriptures that His Holy Spirit, His Shekinah glory, that great cloud of glory, Shekinah, that it re-entered Jerusalem. The second temple. 
We know the temple's built. We know sacrifices are offered. We know that the Lord receives and accepts those sacrifices. But His glory does not return. He is now God of heaven. The glory of the Lord departed and would not come again. Well, at least wouldn't come close for another 400 years after this. Until that starry night outside of Bethlehem as the angels began to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Luke 2.14 I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Christmas is still 61 shopping days away including today. But Nehemiah, after hearing this sad report of Jerusalem, he goes into a depression. He spends days fasting and mourning and praying to the God of heaven. This man who's still in Babylon, actually now he's in Susa, he's still in Persia under the rule of the Persians, and he's even serving the king of Persia. And yet he begins to pray. Verse 5, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant which I am praying before you now, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. Notice that every godly man in Scripture owns the sin of his people. Which we have sinned against you. I am my Father's house have sinned. Verse 70 goes on, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your father, your servants, Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there. And I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. This man, which man? The king of Persia. We'll get there in chapter 2. Nehemiah already has in mind what he needs to do. And then it says, Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Note this again. Dear fellowship, it's important for us to know, to understand each one of us. Nehemiah had no political or religious clout. He was common. He was prayerful. But he was typical. He was biblical. But he's a civil servant. He's a cupbearer to the king. Compare the lineage of this man to that of Ezra. Look back at Ezra chapter 7. Just flip back a few pages. Ezra chapter 7, as Ezra describes his genealogy, his lineage, and Ezra's not trying to be puffed up or anything, but he wants to make sure it's known where he's coming from, because he came back to Jerusalem with authority. And Ezra wrote this about himself. After these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marariath, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now that's quite a pedigree. Look at Nehemiah in verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. That's it. 
Well, who was Hakaliah the son of? We don't know. Well, was there anyone in Nehemiah's genealogy of import, of great stature in the history of Israel? We don't know. In fact, you find very little mention whatsoever of Nehemiah outside of the book of Nehemiah. This guy is every man. He's a common dude. What is it then that makes this man the man for the job? Because the job in Jerusalem is not finished. It is not complete. The people are still in reproach and in distress. The wall is still a shambles around the city. What makes Nehemiah the man that God calls? Folks, listen closely because in this man, Nehemiah, and in his book, in this common cupbearer, we get a tangible picture of how God's Holy Spirit goes about getting things done in His church. Would you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Keep your finger there in Nehemiah chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 3. Keep going to the right. It's about oh, two-thirds of the way through the, the New Testament. Page 1157, if you're using my Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 1. In this first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul doesn't have a whole lot of good things to say. It's a letter of correction and instruction. And he says at the beginning of chapter 3 here, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now... You are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. Which raises the question, well, how are they fleshly? He says, since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? (laughs) What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants. You might circle that. Servants. That's all Paul was. That's all this great Bible teacher Apollos was. They were just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. He says, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. Jot that down. If you're taking notes this morning, that's note number one to understand. We are God's fellow workers. The everyman is a fellow worker. The everyman is a common worker for the Lord. And that's not to be taken lightly, my friends. That's how the job gets done. By the everyman. The every woman. The common person who walks in active faith. That's Nehemiah. Just your average Joe who moves in faith. We were, um, several years ago, someone actually raised the issue of how our, our shepherds were chosen or asked to become shepherds. And one of our current shepherds at the time pointed to the apostles and said, well, you know, they were fishermen, they were... You know, there's a tax collector. There was, you know, there were pretty common guys that Jesus called to himself. And, and the person said, oh, well, if that's the list, if that's the standard you're going to use. As if offended, as if thinking, well, we ought to be looking a little higher than your common average fisherman. My friends, that is how the Lord gets the job done. It is not by the pastor sitting in ivory towers of study 
that the true work of the Lord gets accomplished. I walked in here this morning, set up the guitar, we sat down, we ran through songs, did rehearsal, all that stuff, kind of got prepared. Worship begins, we do the first song. After that, I turn around in my chair to watch the video, and it was the first time I noticed that the speakers are mounted on the wall behind me. And John's cracking up. Because I didn't even see it this morning. I, you know, I walked in here a little, oh, it's 7 o'clock. So I didn't see it. That's how the job gets done. I wasn't down here. I didn't buy the mounts. I didn't make sure it got up there. Well, who told John to do that? I think John did. (laughs) Why? Why would he do such a thing? Because in his ministry, in his understanding, he knew it needed to get done. That's how God does it. Now, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 that he gave some as apostles, sure, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. It's not about priests. It's not about princes. It's about cupbearers. It's about servants. This church would not be here if it was all based on what I did. Truly in the last six years by my mind I have done very little. Most of the hands to the work that you see. Most of the stuff that has gotten done has not been done by me. The that 99.9% has not been done by Pastor Rick. Rick, actually, if you want to skip the whole pastor thing, I'm good with that. And here we are with Nehemiah. We see how this works in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's not the, the prince who accomplishes everything. Zerubbabel, yeah, they got the temple rebuilt, but it didn't get done. So Ezra goes back. Ezra, the priest, goes back to stir up the people. It still doesn't get done. It's the combination of prince and priest and every man who gets the job done. And it won't be until Nehemiah shows up that they begin to rebuild and strengthen the walls, which is highly significant, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes. But Jesus says in Mark 10.44, Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all, cupbearers for our king. Hold that thought. Cupbearers for our king. You know, I know I'm going I'm to speak to that right now because I'll forget it later. What does the cup speak of in, in, in the Word of God? Are we to share communion? It speaks of the blood. We have been called to be cupbearers to the King. Bearing the blood of Jesus Christ to a thirsty and dying world. Jesus says in Luke 22:27, Who is greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Now in our world, it's the one who, recli- who reclines. You know, bring me the head of a pig and a goblet of something cool and refreshing. Somebody fiddle for me. You know, that's, that's the important person in our culture, in our world. And Jesus says, no. <laughs> I am among you as one who serves. I'm the everyman. Jesus came as the everyman. Now, he has quite an impressive genealogy. But he came as the everyman. In God's economy, the only title worth aspiring to is the title of servant. I uh, once I read a quote by an anonymous pastor, and he wrote, "Call me Mister, call me friend, a loving ear to all I'll lend. Do not my soul with anguish rend. Please stop calling me Reverend." <laughs> what the Lord is looking for is people who are so-so, 
What do you mean, so-so? The people who, like I said when we began, show up. Just show up. People who are so-so. By the way, you will find the word so used 50 times in the book of Nehemiah. (laughs) Okay, thanks for that bit of trivia. It's, It's significant. Because I watched Schoolhouse Rock as a kid, and I know about hooking up phrases and clauses and, and, and words, you know. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? I don't know if you guys remember that. So, is most often used as a conjunction, connecting two things. In Nehemiah, you will see so connecting thought and action. And it's used 50 times because Nehemiah gets the call, Nehemiah prays the prayer, Nehemiah has the thought, so... He acts. So, he does what needs to be done. So, he responds. So is an important word in this book. Nehemiah is a man of faith. So, he gets to it. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. In this moment, and what he's prayed for, back in verse 1 when he said, make your servant successful today and, and grant him compassion before the man, before this man, he's talking about the king because he already has in mind, I've got to go talk to the king about this. He's before the king, and I love this, verse 4, Then the king said to me, What would you request? So, I prayed to the God of heaven. Really? Well, in that moment, did Nehemiah fall down on his knees? Did he call for some sackcloth and ashes? Did he spread out his hands wide and begin this ornate, fantastic, religious liturgy? No. No. I can guarantee the king didn't even know Nehemiah was praying. I think this is the fastest prayer ever prayed in Scripture. So Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it please the king. In other words, from the king's question to Nehemiah's response in that split second, oh God, be with me. Well, here's the problem, king. He's a man of action. He's a man who moves. The mentality of this guy is not one of lollygagging around. Well, we'll let someone else get to it. This will happen eventually. He gets right to the point or to the prayer or to the problem. He's an everyman, but he's a man of action, which is why there's a troubleshooter's guide for the everyman. That's the kind of person Nehemiah truly was. In chapter 6, skip over there, we have a couple of hardened adversaries. A couple of interesting men by the name of Sanballat and Tobiah. And Sanballat tries to shoot down what's going on there sand bullet anyway and so they go after him and we'll get there we're going to study this and see this as we come closer to it but in verse 3 they've called him down he's up on the wall he's working hard and they've called him down they're, they're trying to get him down off the wall so they can harm him in some way he realizes this but they call him listen to his response verse 3 I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you He's a man of action. Did or done. This is what, in, in essence, he's saying. I'd love to come down to you guys, talk to you, but we've got to get her done. So I'm here on the wall, and I'm working to see this thing accomplished. Nehemiah is God's fellow worker. So are you. So am I. So we are. I've already had questions about the building project that we've got going on. And, and, I've, and I've had a couple of people say, you know, I don't have much money. Did I ask? God will take care of that. He will through some of you who do have extra money that He's blessed you with. He will through some ways that we haven't even yet conceived and it's going to surprise us. But He's calling the everyman to the work. Can you lay carpet? 
can you swing a hammer? I mean, ultimately, eventually, and I know we keep saying that, it's, it's, been, it's taken time, but eventually, there's going to be work needing to be done. Can you clean up? God is calling the everyman. Now, there's another characteristic of the everyman that God calls to the work. Not only is the everyman God's fellow worker, but number two, the everyman is a faithful follower. A faithful follower. Look back at verse 8 of chapter 1. Nehemiah is praying. He says, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Well, some people did start to pray. Some people had been repenting. People like Daniel. And the Lord showed His faithfulness. Nehemiah is here quoting Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. These are words right out of Scripture itself. And Nehemiah is quoting it. What's the point? Listen, we use the word faithful follower rather loosely, but Nehemiah is a follower who appeals to the faithfulness of God. He is a follower of God's faithfulness, which is what makes him faithful. We don't generate faithfulness in our own hearts. Do you realize that? We're flighty people. We don't generate faithfulness. We follow the generator of faithfulness who is the Lord. We look to His faithfulness and we say, okay, I'm just going to try and do it like He does. That's how faith begins to be developed. We've lost something, I think, of the substance of faithfulness today. It's not an esoteric spiritual word. Oh, He's just so faithful. It's not just the opposite of cheating. I know that's how in our you know, country, in our culture, that's how it's most often applied. Well, is he a faithful husband? Is she a faithful wife? And yet, it, it loses something in translation. Simply put, faithfulness is the condition of being full of faith. It's the condition of being full of faith. And we've talked a lot about faith recently. I think that's something on God's heart for us as a fellowship. Uncompromising, distancing ourselves from the world, subsisting in the good hand of God... Faith. And Hebrews 11.6, a verse that we should have memorized by now, we've quoted it so much, without faith it is impossible to please Him. Yeah, 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 I've heard you read that a number of times, Rick, but I often feel faithless. So how do I continue to be filled up with faith? How do I become the faithful follower like this everyman, Nehemiah, like Jesus is calling me to be? Listen to this, gang. Paul in Ephesians 3.19 is praying Several things for believers. But he says, Know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is Paul's prayer. That we would be filled up to the fullness of God. You see, faithfulness is the need. Love is the key. Love is the key. Listen to what Paul said again. Know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. You want to be filled up? You want to be faithful? Love is the way it works. It's why we attach faithfulness to marriage because it's the expression of the love we already have. The problem in marriage when there is unfaithfulness is because the love has already been shut down or, or, or is having a problem, is having a struggle. Or is forgotten, even momentarily. Because at the heart of unfaithfulness, gang, is a a love problem that needs addressing. You want to fill up your faith? 
in God, here's how you do it. Love Him. Love Him more. I've shared this before. A pastor friend of mine, when I, back when I was in college, shared this in a sermon that someone came in, his marriage was a shambles, he came in and talked to the pastor and said, you know, I, I've just fallen out of love with my wife, I don't love her anymore. And the pastor said, well, that's not a problem. Just go home and love her. But you didn't hear me. I don't love her anymore. You didn't hear me. Go home and love her. It's not the emotion. It's not the feeling. It's the action. It's the doing. To show the love that you have for God. Make Jesus the love of your life. Because faithfulness is not measured in our works, but in our love, which then shows up in our work. But it's a love issue. Okay, Rick, so I just sit around loving Jesus? No, I'm not talking about going to a monastery and being cloistered. Don't monkey with that. None of it will help. (laughs) Listen, the love that I have for Jesus Christ is both proven by and intensified by, don't miss this, the love I have for His body, the church. I wasn't sure if I was going to go there, but I'll go there. Guys, husbands, you want to, you want to keep your eyes from roaming? There's, a, there's an easy way to do it. To encourage faithfulness in your marriage, focus on her physique. Now, let me, let me explain this, gang. Focus on her physique. Recognize God made her. God gave her to you. Nurture the attraction that you have for her. Recognize she is perfect for you. She may not be perfect for someone else. In fact, you don't want her to be. (laughs) She is perfect for you. She may not look like some kind of fashion model, which, by the way, they're all too bony anyway. (laughs) Who wants a wife that looks like that? I mean, you couldn't get your arms... Are you there? You know... What I'm saying, gentlemen, is it's okay to lust after your wife. And that's okay. That's a good thing. And I think sometimes in the, in the church, in our puritanical past, we think lust of any kind is bad. No, lust for your wife is fantastic. Go for it. <laughs> lust for her. And when she walks by, go, yeah. <laughs> not only will it work for you, it'll make her feel better. But listen, gang, the, I'm not talking about husbands and wives here. In the same way as Paul was talking about Christ and the church, that's what we're talking about. Focus on His physique. That is, His body. You want to love Christ more, love His body. Check out His body. Keep your eyes on His body. Nurture attraction for His body. Someone says, well, I love Jesus, I just hate the church. I have to ask, how much can you really possibly love Jesus? Can you love Jesus and hate the church? Not according to Scripture. John said in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is Scripture. This is tough stuff. This is about as difficult as it gets in challenging us in our relationships. This commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So if you're having trouble loving Jesus, if you're feeling kind of flighty or loose in your faith, perhaps the best thing for you to do is start loving his body, the church. Start looking even right here in this fellowship and saying, I'm going to live for other people. 
I'm going to love the people here. I'm going to find my attraction, nurture my attraction right here. I'm going to focus on this physique. And (laughs) we're we're an interesting looking group of people. Gather any group of people together in the world and you're going to find an interesting, unique looking group of people. But to focus on the body, to love the body, gang, your love for Jesus will increase the more you love in His body. In the same way, husbands, the more you're... You love your wife's body. Your love for her is going to increase. There's a, there's a, I know it's a male thing. You women are going, how can... Because we don't think about the physical thing. You know, I get that. But we guys do. And one of the sure ways to increase our love for our wives is to increase our attraction to them. And that is something that we do in our hearts, in our minds. It's not something they do at the gym. Listen to this verse. Colossians 1.24 got a shocking statement, so listen very closely. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's speaking to the church at Colossae. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's a tough one. What? Paul says, by loving the body, I am filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, I didn't think there was anything lacking in Christ's afflictions. Listen carefully. The word afflictions is never attached to the cross or the work of grace or the work of salvation. That word there is only attached to the church. And when Paul uses it, he says, I I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What he's saying is that he wants to take as much of Christ's suffering in the body, as much as the body's suffering, he wants to take on himself as much as possible. He so intimately equates Christ and the church that what he says is, the afflictions, the suffering, the persecution, the heartache in the church, I want it. I want to take it off your shoulders. I want to take it off of your heart. I want to take it off your back and put it right here. I want to take it on me. Well, how could any man stand that? Well, Paul knew the, knew the trick to that. And then you release the weight of it to the Father. He loved the church so much. He willingly suffered for the church, the body of Jesus Christ. His willingness to suffer for the church came directly out of the incredible, passionate love that Paul had for Jesus. And that's what we're talking about here. The everyman is a faithful follower, following the faithful example of the Father, following after the Father in faithfulness, loving the body will generate faithfulness hate the body, despise the body have a problem with the body and you're going to have a problem with Jesus eventually so Nehemiah is faithful to the Lord for his people so he goes before Artaxerxes and he risks position and protection and a peaceful life in Babylon to go back to the front lines of rebuilding in Jerusalem in times of distress. By the way, Daniel 9.25, Daniel writes, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven Shavuah, that is sevens, and sixty-two Shavuah, which is sevens, it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. That verse, that prophecy given 90 years before by Daniel is fulfilled in Nehemiah. The issue of the decree, the decree that Daniel's talking about is the decree that Artaxerxes gives Nehemiah to go back and build the temple there in 444 BC. I told you that date was important. 
Because if you track down from 444 B.C., we get down right to Jesus. I'll tell you that in a second too. The faithful work of Nehemiah, however, covers the first seven sevens. In your Bibles, it's probably translated weeks. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Well, the word weeks, you Bible students know, it's sevens. Seven sevens, seven times seven, 49. It's 49 years. The work of Nehemiah is across a period of 49 years. The time that he works to rebuild the wall, that he's with the people there in Jerusalem working, his faithfulness crosses 49 years. And it was born out of love for his people. I remember being in college and we had a a lectureship at the Christian college I was at. And I was standing in this big tent and there were all kinds of pastors in there. And as a a young college student, and I was an aspiring pastor, and I was looking at these guys and and, and there were some really sharp speakers there and, and great leaders in the church and I was impressed with them. And then... Then they started asking a question, how long have you been in ministry? How long have you been in ministry? The vast majority, two or three years. And the more time that was added to that, the more people sat down until we got to about three guys in the whole room of guys who were in ministry 50 years or more. That's faithfulness. That is faithfulness. And Nehemiah is a faithful follower of the Lord. A faithful follower. If you have love in your heart for the body then you have love for the head of the body, which is Jesus. By the way, Cheryl and I left for our honeymoon in Hawaii, and I didn't just take her head with me. I wanted Oliver to be there for the honeymoon. Note this in Nehemiah, along with the grease and coffee stains in his personal troubleshooter's guide for the everyman, there are tear stains. Because Nehemiah loves his people so much. What kind of man breaks down in tears when he hears that his people are in distress? A man with a heart like Nehemiah's. Verse 4 back in chapter 1 says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is a man who loved his people. In verse 10 it says, he's praying, it says, They're your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. This brings me to the last point. Nehemiah's heart is so set on his people, he wants nothing more than to see them built up and restored and protected. And to this end, the book of Nehemiah His story is written. Last point, number three, the everyman is a fervent comforter. The everyman is a fervent comforter. Oh, he's a a faithful follower after the Lord. He's God's fellow worker and he is a fervent comforter. Verse 10 of chapter 2 tells us that when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, that is him coming back to build the wall, It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. And that's why Nehemiah went back. To seek the welfare of the sons of Israel, Israel, his people. The impetus for the whole book, what compels this every man's return to Jerusalem, even fits his given name. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, which means comforter of Yahweh. Comforter of Yahweh. Of Yahweh. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't Ezra's name mean helper? That's right. Helper. And we talked about how Ezra was a picture 
of the Holy Spirit. And from chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, and by the way, if you weren't here on Wednesday night during those studies, I encourage you to go online and listen to them. Because we look at the Holy Spirit as evidenced in the life of Ezra, but also as pictured by Ezra, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what we see in Ezra. Okay, well, Ezra means helper, so that makes sense. Well, Nehemiah means comforter. Comforter of Yahweh. Um, we already talked about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, so what does that mean for Nehemiah? Gang, in John 14-16, through 16, the Apostle uses the word parakletos to describe the Holy Spirit. Parakletos is translated both ways. Helper and comforter. So guess what? Oh, I get it, Rick. You, you're, you're saying that this picture of the Holy Spirit continues now with Nehemiah. No. No? No, it doesn't just continue with Nehemiah. It continues with Esther as well. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, we see in all three books dramatic pictures of the Holy Spirit of the living God. And this is not just because Rick's off on a Holy Spirit kick. This is where the Word is. And we want to be where the Word is. We want to be where God has us. And this happens to be where He has us. So just a little side note. Hold on to your hats because there is much more to view and understand regarding the Spirit of God in coming weeks. Here's a preview for you. Ezra is about the building and rebuilding of the temple. The temple. Well, the temple in Scripture is a picture of my spirit. Your spirit. Nehemiah is about the building and renewing, not of the temple, but of the walls. The walls around the temple, which is a picture of my soul. My intellect, my, my mind, my reasoning. Esther is all about physical protection outside the land, which is a picture of the flesh. In these three books, we see coverage by the Holy Spirit of the spirit, soul, and flesh of each person. That's our makeup. That's who we, we are triune. In the same way our God is triune, so we are triune, gang. We have a spirit that is our everlasting selves. We have a soul that is our intellect and mind the way we think. And we have the flesh. And the Holy Spirit addresses each one of all three. We'll see more of this in coming weeks. Especially on Wednesday nights and following. But this morning, listen, if the Holy Spirit of the living God resides in you, then you, the every man, the every woman, you are called to be, like Him, a comforter. You are called to be a comforter. This is part of the ministry that doesn't belong to the pastor or the shepherds or some church leader. It's not a ministry just of a priest or a prince. It is a ministry of every man, each and every one of us. We have been called to be comforters. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you flip there quickly or just listen up as I read. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's come back around to the church at Corinth. He's writing again. And listen to what he says. This, this passage is wonderful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Verse 5, that's huge. Are you suffering? Are you in affliction? Are you in a struggle? Guess what? Just as the sufferings of Christ may be abundant in you, so His comfort is also abundant for you. 
He doesn't promise you're not going to suffer. He doesn't promise it's not going to get dicey. What He promises is His comfort will be there for you and with you to see it through whatever you're facing. But, verse 6, if we are afflicted, Paul says it's for your comfort and for your salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. For our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. It is of vital importance that we as people of Christ understand, as every man, as every woman followers of Jesus, that we are called to catch hold of this calling of being comforters. Not just to be comforted ourselves in Christ. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who stop right there. I come because I'm looking for comfort for me. Fine. You will probably get it. But your calling goes beyond that to offer the comfort of Christ even as you yourself are being comforted. You've heard the old cliche, well maybe this is happening to you so that you can help others. Maybe you're going through cancer so that you eventually can help someone else. Maybe you have some kind of physical problem in your life so that you can help somebody else. Maybe you're in a relationship struggle so you eventually can help someone else. I've heard that so much in my life and and I'll tell you what, outside of Christ those are pretty empty words. But for Jesus, the whole idea of me going through something so I can help someone else, I'd rather just not go through it. I'll help other people. <laughs> Why do I have to do this? And Outside of Christ, it, 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 in fact, I, I've said this before, outside of Jesus, I would have to be the most selfish person in the entire universe because why would I care about you? I would be looking for everything I could get out of this life for me if I didn't believe in Jesus. Because if I believed this life was it, why would I waste my time? <laughs> <laughs> Why would any of us waste our time caring for another human being? Caring for the environment, caring for the next generation. Who cares about them? Live and live good. Because you don't have much. A few years and you're gone. Live it up now. But we're not outside of Christ. We are in Jesus Christ. We have an eternal future. We have an incredible comfort from Him. And in Christ, maybe this is happening to you so that you can comfort someone else. That's what Paul is saying. And in Christ... That kind of thinking is based in the hope of our comfort. The hope of it. We're called to be comforters. Which means we look out to the body. The body we love. The body we care about as comforters. Well, let's bring this all together. Back in verse 3 of Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah had just asked for some information on what was going on in Judea, in Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach and the wall, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. That's kind of the hinge passage of the whole book. That's the motivation. That's the picture we're given. The wall is broken down. And for about the first half of this book, that's the role of Nehemiah to build the wall. To be honest, I thought Ezra was a better book years ago. I know the idea of building the temple. Now that's significant. Building the wall. Who cares? Who wants to be on that team? You know, I want to be something. You know, I, yeah, I helped rebuild the second temple. See those those uh, stones there? I laid them. But the wall, 
Yeah, you're in, you're in charge of the wall by the dung gate. Yeah. Thanks so much. The wall. The wall. They're rubble. The gates. They're charred and burned and blackened. But they're just walls, right? I mean, so what? In Nehemiah's day, the strength of the wall wasn't just about the security of the people. The strength of the wall indicated the superiority of the God of that people. That's why Babylon's walls were massive. Because the Babylonians would say, Our gods are big. Well, the Hittites, they had a wall. Big, strong one. Their God must be mighty. The Perizzites, they had a wall, so their God must be protecting them. The Moabites, they had a wall, their God must be with them. Ezra, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 9, said, Our God has not forsaken us. He has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins and the ruins of Jerusalem, and finally, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem to give you a wall yeah because people would look at that wall around Jerusalem look at the wall around that city it's shambles their God must have left their God must be weak the God of the Jews must not care and that's why Nehemiah went back to rebuild a wall to rebuild a wall yes but more so For there in verse 3, it wasn't just about rebuilding the wall, it was about the great distress and reproach that was on the people. Nehemiah goes back, feeling the Father's heart. What is the Father's heart here? It's to not bring reproach or distress, but to remove it. How? By rebuilding broken lives. Nehemiah goes back to build a wall and to rebuild broken lives. Zephaniah 3.18 the Lord's heart. Here's what God says. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile. It's a burden on them. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. The Lord comes to remove reproach. To remove distress. By the way, Zephaniah 3, what I just read is a prophecy to come for Israel. It will be fulfilled by the God of Israel completely. Their shame will be a praise and a renown in all the earth. It will happen. But Jesus already laid the foundation for all of this. Romans 14.3, Paul said, Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. fell on me. The Comforter. Comforter of Yahweh goes back to remove distress and to remove reproach. Jesus in His death on the cross. In fact, just as Daniel prophesied, 444 B.C. a decree is given. Exactly 434 years after Nehemiah went back to remove the reproach and distress of His people, Jesus was led through the wall to a place just outside the wall where He was crucified. Why? To remove the reproach and the distress of our lives. 
The calling of every man, every woman in Jesus Christ is the same calling. We are God's fellow workers. We are Christ's faithful followers. We are fervent comforters by His Spirit. And the book of Nehemiah is more than a book of history. It is a troubleshooter's guide for the everyman. For what? A guide for what? A guide for rebuilding broken lives. This is the undercurring theme as we go through this book. Rebuilding, rebuilding, rebuilding. And so, as we pray that God fills us up to the fullness of Christ, we pray, gang, that we will be fellow workers, faithful followers, fervent comforters. Hebrews 13.12 Jesus, so that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. Let's pray. Father, it is obvious to me that the further down the line we go, the more like Jesus You call us to become, the less important we are and the more important our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and our fellow human beings are. This is a land of broken people. This is a place where lives are a shambles and You have called us to be builders, rebuilders, with the grace, mercy, and truth of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that You, by Your Spirit, would empower us to do what we couldn't do on our own. We, like Nehemiah, are just every man. But by Your Spirit, something can be done. By Your Spirit, work and faith and comfort can come. So we pray for more. We ask for more. Not selfishly, Lord, but for Your body. We ask for more of Your Spirit. For lost people, we ask for more of Your Spirit that we might be empowered to bring truth and love in this world. Father, I know even as we talk about this this morning that there are those here, and we'll be here second hour, who themselves feel their lives broken down and burdened and burned out battered, bruised, Father, would You alert each of us that we might come to the aid, that we might bring the comfort, that we might be used of You to rebuild. And if there's anyone sitting here this morning who feels that that place of, of brokenness, Holy Spirit, would You bring Your comfort? Thank You for Your Word today, Father. In Jesus we pray. Amen.